Good morning. There's something exhausting about having a baby. There's also something more exhausting about having a baby right around, no, on the day of daylight savings time changing. Not only are you not getting enough sleep, but the days seem way off. I hate daylight savings time. I wish they'd get rid of it. Um, I joked before the election, this will probably be my only political statement of the morning, but I joked before the election that if any candidate came out Tuesday morning and said, if I'm elected, I will do away with daylight savings time, they would have won in a landslide. (laughs) They would have gotten every parent's vote that day, especially parents of little children whose clocks don't change like the clocks on the wall do. Um, I do want to pass along uh, a couple of things this morning. Uh, First off, uh, next week is the annual Kumo Thanksgiving uh, down at the the uh, the Kumo uh, Mission um, down in South Cumminsville. If you if you're not familiar with it, it's a work that's done by um, a number of area congregations. Uh, they support a, a minister down there, uh, and uh, th- that is in it's really the poorest part of Cincinnati. It's it's literally in in the heart of it's in the Millvale Recreation Center is where they where they meet. Uh, but every year they have a Thanksgiving meal. They serve uh, anywhere from 150 to 250 people that come in. Um, and uh, last year and this year, um, I'm working to get the turkeys prepared uh, for that dinner. And we've got to get about 12 turkeys and get them cooked. I've got a caterer lined up, etc. But uh, I'm coming to you this morning. If, if you'd like to assist at all with the Thanksgiving meal, there is a sign-up that Adam uh, Zabo sent out. I emailed that out to our, our new email list. If you got that, great. If not, please see me. I'll give you information about that. But there are other things that can be donated. Uh, if you'd like to donate financially, either towards the turkeys or towards uh, the people down there, they also give out gift cards uh, to those who are in need as well. And if you'd like to give gift cards, uh, you can do that. Uh, you can bring them next Sunday or Wednesday night. Uh, you, you still have time. Um, and if you do decide to go the gift card route, just make sure that you do either Kroger or Walmart gift cards. That's what they prefer um, to give out there. And, and in do- denominations of 20 to $50, nothing, nothing more than that. Um, I'd also like to take this time, of course, uh, I've got the microphone now so I can talk. Uh, but I'd like to thank everybody uh, sincerely for uh, your prayers. Why am I crying? Prayers and support uh, over uh, the birth of Riley. Uh, he was born last Saturday, pretty uneventful uh, birth, thankfully, uh, much, much better and different than, than Lincoln, um, but uh, he's a fantastic child uh, so far, uh, and so <laughs> uh, he will, uh, he, he's sleeping pretty good at night, and, uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a blessing because our other two didn't do so hot, but, um, but uh, Sarah's home with him today. Uh, we hope to have him uh, here next week. And uh, I thought about it yesterday, and I thought, you know, Sarah, this will be our second child that we will bring to Loveland Heights Church of Christ for their first services. Um, Lincoln, his first service was here. Um, I believe it was a tryout uh, for the position of minister. So, um, so uh, thank you very much for the, for the uh, for the prayers and also for the meals. Uh, I joked with Sarah that we're going to be having another baby very soon so that we can keep these meals coming in because they, they are fabulous. Um, well, joking aside, today we start a new sermon series. Uh, we were supposed to start it last week, but obviously that didn't happen. Um, but this week, um, we're going to start off with a, a quick introduction. Not really quick. <laughs> I'm never quick. Um, 
but an introduction to this series. And this, this series is going to focus on a small section of Scripture that we heard read this morning from Hebrews chapter 10. Now, the book of Hebrews is a wonderful work that begins really as a type of essay, and then it transitions into a sermon. And when I read through the book of Hebrews, it's almost a binder of multiple sermons that someone put together. It has, it's filled with, with rich illustrations, with, with applications that we can put into practice, and they are definitely intended for its original Jewish convert audience as well as us today. Now, whenever we focus on a specific book or a section of Scripture, uh, it's important to get a good basis of what it is we're studying. Now, as Joe alluded to when he read uh, the Scripture reading this morning, it starts with a therefore, and that's verse 19 of the 10th chapter. And the therefore is based on what he talks about, what the writer talks about in the previous 18 verses. And so we're going to look at that today. We want to get a, a full understanding of the components of the writing of the book of Hebrews. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? When was it written? Why was it written? The major themes, etc. All of these things are important because they make up the bowl of the salad. Uh, Sorry, this is going to be a very punny and metaphoric uh, sermon series, but um, hopefully if you listen closely to the scripture reading, you understand where I'm going with this. If not, you will soon. But the bowl of the salad, what holds the lettuce Uh, for our sermon series is the book of Hebrews itself. And so we need to have a a good understanding of what it is that we're studying, what the the confines of this book is. So let's look at the background of the epistle a little bit. So the first question is, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? Now, many Bibles and many scholars point to Paul. Others point elsewhere. Now, the Scripture itself is anonymous. The book itself is written anonymously. There is no signature. Um, In several of Paul's letters, they begin often with a greeting that says, I, Paul, to you, whomever. He often starts his letters out that way. But this epistle omits any such seal. However, there are numerous clues throughout the book that point to Paul as the writer. The style of the letter is very Pauline in structure. It is, however, more rhetorical in nature than other letters, but I believe that this is a typical approach when addressing things the audience should readily know. When Paul writes to the Gentiles, the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, etc., uh, he does so in a direct teaching approach. So at the conclusion of this letter, though, there are some context clues as well that we can draw from to who the author is, and it points to a Pauline authorship. In chapter 13, verse 23, the author points to Timothy being released. Now, throughout Paul's ministry and even Timothy's, it's well known from Scripture that Timothy is often accompanying Paul, and Paul often spoke of him or for him in his letters. The next verse in chapter 13, verse 24, the writer says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Now we know from other scripture that Paul spent the latter portion of his life imprisoned in Rome, eventually martyred at the hands of Nero in Rome in A.D. 67, which is the back end of the dating suggested for this letter. 
So Paul, if, if he is the writer, would have been writing from Rome and likely would have had contact with the other churches in Rome who would send a greeting such as this. There is little more to go on, really, in terms of who wrote the book of Hebrews, but I would posit that the anonymity of the letter itself points to Paul as the writer. With the audience being that of former Jews, Jewish Christians, Jewish converts, if you will, his name prefixed to it may have prevented many of his Jewish brethren from reading it because of his former positions within the Jewish faith. Um, whether it was Paul writing it or Paul through the hand of someone else or the Holy Spirit uh, writing this through someone else altogether, ultimately, uh, we know that the Holy Spirit was the author and that it was breathed out for God or by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The book of Hebrews, whether it was written by Paul or somebody else, is essential to our faith and essential to our understanding of Christ's sacrifice. Because that's the purpose of the book of Hebrews. The purpose, uh, well, the, the ultimate purpose really is to prevent apostasy, prevent those who are faithfully Christians, uh, these Jewish Christians essentially, from falling away from their faith in Jesus Christ. This is accomplished through encouragement to build up a stronger faith based on the three main divisions of the letter. The first division is chapter 1 through the beginning of chapter 8. This section focuses on the superiority of Christ. Christ is detailed as being a better messenger than the prophets, that God has spoken to the apostles and the world at that time through Jesus. He's detailed as being better than the angels because of His deity and His humanity, something we talked about briefly this morning in class. Jesus is described better than Moses because He's the Son that provides heavenly rest. He's described better than Aaron as His priesthood is much superior to Aaron's. The next section begins at the beginning of chapter 8 and goes through the beginning of chapter 10 and it discusses the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. It's superior because it has better promises, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. And the sacrifice part is important, especially to one of Jewish faith. And this is where we pick up in chapter 10. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 10, as we'll be spending the bulk of our time there this morning. And it's here in chapter 10 that the writer transitions to exhortations drawn from the superiority of Christ and the new covenant. It is these exhortations from which we find the lettuce for our salad in this series. In chapter 10, 19 through 25 is where we find those lettuce statements. But before we get there, I think it behooves us, as I mentioned before, to go back and read the beginning of chapter 10 to look at the eloquent conclusion to the writer's argument about the superiority of the new covenant and Christ's sacrifice in the first half of chapter 10. So let's begin in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the writer begins this section to talk about the need of Christ's sacrifice, why we need that sacrifice, while also detailing its superiority. First of all, animal sacrifices did not provide true remission of sins. The law, as the writer puts it, was but a shadow of the good things to come. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 through 5, the writer expands this point and says that the gifts and sacrifices themselves were but copies and shadows of heavenly things. For they symbolized what Jesus would ultimately do. The sacrifices that the Jews gave before in the Old Covenant were just a reflection, just a shadow of what Jesus would ultimately do for us. The writer that explains this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 12 and verse 24, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The true things, or as detailed in the verses that we just read in chapter 10, the good things includes His better sacrifice, the better hope, and the better redemption, eternal redemption, and eternal inheritance. These things that the previous sacrifices, which were merely copies, could not provide. So let's go back to chapter 10 for one last point from the first few verses here. These sacrifices did not, once and for all, make the worshipers perfect. The continual yearly sacrifice was a constant reminder of their imperfectness. I emphasized the wrong syllable there. It was a reminder of their imperfectness. There we go. And in and of itself showed the inability of these sacrifices to be for the remission of sins. And the inability of these sacrifices ultimately to make the worshiper perfect. This shadow of the good thing being the perfect sacrifice of Christ was to serve the purpose to impress upon the people the need they had for a perfect sacrifice, to take away their sins once and for all, which was accomplished through Christ. Thus, we have the superior sacrifice. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant were provided according to the law. But what about the sacrifice of the New Covenant? Who provided that? We find the provision of this better sacrifice in the next several verses here in verses 5 through 9. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you, uh, have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. 
He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The writer quotes from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, there in verses 5 through 7. And it shows Christ's attitude when He came into this world. In verse 5, we see that the sacrifices and burnt offerings did not meet the Father's ultimate desire. But what did meet His desire, He Himself provided in the form of a perfect Lamb, a perfect body, in Jesus Christ. This is a reminder that the atonement of sin that we have access to was provided by God. The Apostle John wrote something very similar in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Now in verse 7 through 9 here, we see that even though this atonement or propitiation for sin was provided by God, it was offered freely, though, by Jesus. Jesus came to do the will of God. And in this, we see another reason as to why the sacrifice of Christ was greater. Animal sacrifices were often given against their will. It was a checkbox in their yearly to-do list, if you will. But Jesus' sacrifice was freely offered in accordance with His Father's will, and it established a new covenant. Now, the latter half of verse 9 shows that through Jesus' better sacrifice, through His better sacrifice, He did away with the first covenant and established a new one. This second covenant of which Christ is the mediator. So what animal sacrifices could not accomplish, God did by the sending of His Son who freely accepted the task of offering Himself for sin. But was His sacrifice adequate? Let's read on to verses 10 through 18. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, uh, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. By Jesus' sacrifice, those who believe have been set apart or sanctified through this offering. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient in that it only needed to be offered once. The repetition of daily sacrifices in the Jewish faith, according to the law, showed their inadequacy. But with Jesus' sacrifice, it was one sacrifice for sins forever. And we know that he will not be offering this sacrifice again because he now sits at the right hand of God. He sits and he waits and he reigns, waiting for his enemies to be placed at his feet. And this perfect final sacrifice offered once for all 
removes the need for any other offering for sin because it provides true remission of sins. It is through Christ's sacrifice, the new covenant in which we have access to God, no longer having to go through a priest, no longer separated by a giant thick curtain in a temple. We now have access to God through our mediator, Christ, to seek forgiveness. And where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer a need to offer a sacrifice for atonement, for it has already been completed, and it is perfect, and it is superior. It is all of this that then leads the writer into a therefore statement in verse 19, meaning because of all of this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is here that we find our three types of lettuce that make up our scripture salad for this series. The first, which we'll look at in more depth next week, is let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to what or to whom? We'll answer that next week. The next, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What is the confession of our hope? What is our hope? Where is our hope? This is the second type of lettuce that we'll dig deeper into in this series as well. And the last type of lettuce that brings the salad together and ties it, in, uh, ties it to the body as a whole is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice that in each of these phrases that it was that the, the, the word that is used, the writer's exhortations, have a plurality to them. Us. It's something we need to do individually and as a whole, but it's the whole, the full body that works to encourage one another. Of course, without the us, we couldn't have scripture salad. It would say, let you, and that doesn't work. Let us works much better. But it's the whole we are a body of believers. We're, while individually we are the church, together we are a strong church. In Hebrews chapter 10, I believe, uh, specifically these verses that we're going to look at in this series, gives us a healthy fare of lettuce to build up a strong body. And so we're going to look at that in this series. Now remember, the main purpose of the book of Hebrews is to prevent apostasy or falling away from faith in Jesus Christ by encouraging a strong and unified faith. Now I hope this introduction to our series has encouraged you and you are looking forward, as I am, to the next few lessons looking at the three things that we are encouraged to do as to strengthen and unify the body both individually and as a whole. But I also hope today's lesson has Prick the hearts of any here who have not obeyed the gospel that may not or do not have the full assurance of faith because you have not yet obeyed the command to repent and be baptized. 
When we are baptized, we are baptized into the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom we have atonement. It is through that baptism that we join Christ in that perfect sacrifice. Without that baptism, we have no access to the sacrifice. Without that baptism, without that belief, without that repentance, we don't have access to the full assurance of faith. If you're here this morning and you have a need that the church can assist you with, or if you wish to be baptized for the remission of your sins, please come now while we stand and sing.